Hey there, Kubrick fans. If you like what you hear during this episode, be sure to visit our website at thekubrickseries.com for more episodes and uncut interviews from the series. And you can also consider making a one-time or recurring monthly donation in any amount of your choosing if you'd like to support our podcast. That's thekubrickseries.com. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to the Kubrick series Uncut. In this episode, we speak with film analyst Barry Krush. Mr. Krush has written essays on everything from media to psychology to politics to the Constitution. His cinematic writings have largely centered on the works of Stanley Kubrick. I don't know, I know you know this from the history books, but I grew up when there was something called the Cuban Missile Crisis. Mm-hmm. And I, I lived in Florida, Lakeland, Florida. And Florida was a pretty hot place to be because it wasn't very far from Cuba. So in the run-up to that, there was all this hysteria, this Cold War hysteria about possible nuclear attack on the United States, particularly Florida, since it was really close to Cuba. And I remember my dad had gotten some, actually, I guess they were suicide pills, if you want to call them that, uh, just in case there was radiation poisoning. So this is the state of mind that was going on back then, this real Cold War mentality. And I was about six years old, and I guess it was a couple years later, they took me to a drive-in movie, and the movie was Dr. Strangelove. And being only six years old, I wasn't really able to make the distinction between reality and fiction, so I thought I was watching a news program because it it looked to me like what I just, you know, what I remember from the Cuban Missile Crisis and the final shot in the film when the guy uh, was riding the nuclear missile down to Earth. I mean, I thought that was a news report. And I fully expected the whole world to blow up at that time. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> so that was, that was my first exposure. And, and, it, and it's all Slim Pickens' fault. <laughs> it's all Slim Pickens' fault. Yeah. yeah. And uh, so... After recovering from that trauma, uh, I went back to my normal state of life. And, you know, again, back then, you have to understand the state of films and the state of cinema. When 2001 came out, why it was such a landmark. Uh, in the town I grew up in, Lakeland, Florida, we had, I think, three screens. So you had a theater called the Polk Theater, which mm-hmm. had one screen. And then you had another theater. I don't know if it's still there. It's called the Grove Theater. Grove Park, there. That, that, the Grove Park was shut down uh, m- many years ago. Polk Theater's still around for weekend showings. Okay, so Grove Park. So that had two theaters, mm-hmm. and that was it. You, you had three screens. And obviously your televisions, most of them were black and white. I guess they were 13-inch screens. No Internet, obviously, DVDs, VHS. So really, technologically, very primitive. And all of a sudden, in 1968, this incredible visual display came out 2001 and everyone was just you know the jaws dropped just the sheer technique of the thing mm-hmm. uh it, again i guess com- comparable to what people uh thought when they first saw star wars which yeah. i also saw at the polk theater when it first came out i guess it was 1977 that came out mm. and that was a similar type of experience so of course, the people who had seen Star Wars, had seen 2001, kind of knew what they had to aim for because Kubrick really set the bar with that film with special effects. Nothing like yeah. that had ever been done. Nothing even remotely close, unless you want to count the Ten Commandments. 
but even that was very primitive compared to what Kubrick did with 2001. Again, without the use of computers, without the use of CGI, it was all done with you know the standard techniques. And you look at it today, and it really holds up. Very much. You know why it holds up mostly outside of the 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 effects that the the jaw dropping effects work on it Be, because it's a movie like all Kubrick movies of ideas uh, uh, that that uh, were questions that that we always will have for for as long as there is a humankind um, and the the idea of 2001 I think turned him on uh, most and changed the the genre oh absolutely so. So here's Kubrick. Now, what's great about Kubrick, and unlike most American film directors or any director for that matter, is he's working within the studio system to produce art films, mm-hmm. and that's that's really that's really something hard to pull off. Uh, David Lynch did it to a certain extent with Blue Velvet, and Martin Scorsese has done it to a certain extent. But Kubrick really mastered the art of making art films that the the public would want to see, commercially yeah. successful art films. And so, you know, they're multi-layered films. So at the one level, the most basic level is just the spectacular special effects and the story of 2001. And if that's all you ever got out of the film, you'd walk away from it and go, oh, wow, that was really amazing, and you'd you have a good experience. But then there's, like, so much else going on in these movies, and that's when they really get interesting. Um, because... The operative word in 2001 to me is the final word in the film, which is mystery. Um, the film itself is a mystery. And you get the sense that Kubrick wants the people watching it to come out of the film asking questions instead of thinking that they've received answers. Yeah. Because he kind of wants to, he wants you to get into a state of mind like his, his where you're really searching and probing and asking versus just accepting and following. That's and why I'm so thankful. I'm so sorry. Go ahead. I, I was Go ahead. just going to uh, interject. That's why I'm so thankful that he actually never did talk about the meanings of his films. I mean, he did very few interviews, and when he was asked about the meaning of certain films, he refused. And I'm so thankful for that uh, because the strength of these films and in reviewing these films, it is it's a different experience each time you watch it. It's a deeper one, and I, I know of no other director that produces films that. 40 years after their original release, they still have a mystery surrounding them, and you're discovering new things. Yeah, and they really hold up, like you said. And yeah. they're, you know, they're universal films that anyone can relate to. I mean, 2001 has very little dialogue. So, in a sense, you might even call it a silent film. Mm-hmm. And, and, and many many times it is a silent film, except for the, the music in the background, but very little dialogue. And the dialogue that's, that's there isn't really, you know... It's not Shakespeare, right? I mean, 2001, people are talking about, you know, what do you think of the sandwich? And uh, that was a heck of a speech you gave, Floyd. And really, it's very pedantic type of dialogue, which is kind of his point, I think, mm-hmm. in the film. And that, you know, we've come all this way, and, and look what we've really achieved, which is indicated by the progress of food in the film, right? So, you know, again, when you start to analyze it and you look at it thematically, you can see these progressions that he's making, and he's like trying to tell you something with these progressions. So, with food, uh, the very first example of food is you know the the dead animal that you see in the opening shots of 2001. Uh-huh. 
people killing for food. Then you flash forward, you know, several thousand years later, and what are they eating? They're eating these sandwiches, which basically have no taste. They all taste the same. And then you go onto the spaceship, and the food gets even more ridiculous. It's paste. Mm-hmm. You're right. Mm-hmm. So the progress of man is, look where we are now, we're, we're eating paste. <clears throat> Which, again, it's all tied together by the final shot in the film where he finally sits down and eats a real meal in that in that final sequence. Yeah. Which... Which for me is one of the the most masterful twenty minutes of film ever made. That that final sequence because uh, it's pure poetry. And you know, what? Why that room? Why is the room a seventeenth century room? Why is that monolith there? Why is why does he see himself in the future, or is he seeing another copy of himself? You know what Kubrick is doing with time there. Why he reverts back to a baby. I mean. Mm-hmm. <laughs> It just goes on and on, like you said, the, the questions. <clears throat> yeah, absolutely. And I, I'm, I'm getting, in terms of in terms of the questions, uh, the lingering mysteries of his movies, it seems like I'm getting the most discussions going about uh, 2001, Eyes Wide Shut, but especially The Shining, mm-hmm. uh, which is somewhat surprising to me because a lot of people view The Shining as a straightforward horror movie, but... No, no, no. <laughs> I mean, nothing is straightforward with, with Kubrick. Uh, oh, definitely. Well, you know, The Shining is a great example. That's, so that's the most <clears throat> obviously accessible on that literal mm-hmm. level, right? Mm-hmm. And you look at that, you go, oh, it's just a horror movie. And a lot of people, when they first saw it, were looking at it from that standpoint. But there's, again, so much going on in the movie, you, you can't just dismiss it as another horror movie. You've got references to Diane Arbus. Okay, mm-hmm. Diane Arbus is a photographer, and uh, Kubrick knew her. Have you ever seen her books of photographs, Diane Arbus? I have. I mean, it, it, it's especially uh, relevant in the uh, the twins and his the twin girls in right. his film, correct? Yeah. Right. But you know, so again, in case you think it's an accident that there's an echo to Diane Arbus, if you go to Eyes Wide Shut, <clears throat> there's a shot of a Christmas tree, which is very reminiscent of another Diane Arbus photo. So Kubrick has, he's using what people call intertextuality, where his films are actually referring to other films in his genre, which is yeah. very interesting. He's tying all of his films together by with thematic linkages. So, for example, at the end of Dr. Strangelove, uh, the woman is singing, we'll meet again some sunny day. And 2001 opens with a shot of the sun. Right, so you're automatically linked there. In Full Metal Jacket, uh, the troops at the end are singing the song about Mickey Mouse. And if you look in The Shining, Danny is wearing a shirt that has Mickey Mouse on it. Hmm. Um, and again, all the Diane Arbus connections that are th- through the movies, and there's this constant linkages back and forth. And of course, you have all the subtextual stuff. Like, have you heard the thing about Hal and IBM? The connection with that. I have, yeah. I heard that Kubrick did, denied it, but the, it does seem very coincidental. <laughs> well, you know, he, he denied it, but again, that may be part of his whole idea that he doesn't want to have anything that he says anchoring down the meaning of the film. Right, but right. Someone else noticed that uh, there's a code that appears elsewhere. It says CRM114. And if you do the same type of acronym shifting with that, you get DSL 
which can be seen as Doctor Strangelove. Oh. Uh, the the numbers on the doors in The Shining and the numbers on doors in Eyes Wide Shut. So you, you sort of have to look at all these things and compare and contrast, and then you start to get at what's really going on. Uh, take the theme of insanity. Now, that theme is running throughout most, if not all, of Kubrick's films, right? Uh-huh, uh-huh. So Dr. Strangelove is, is a clear case of that. The whole world seems to be insane, and Jack D. Ripper is, is clearly off his rocker. In 2001, Hal goes berserk. Clockwork Orange, you've got uh, basically a psychologist trying to cure a person of some type of mental illness, uh, the ultraviolence. Barry Lyndon is focused on a world that's really about reason, and yet the people are acting in a very unreasonable manner much of the time. The Mm -hmm. Shining, Jack is going crazy. Full Metal Jacket, the... uh, you know the the scene, the great scene in there where he basically goes crazy and, and kills himself. Uh, the the private, right? And uh, less so with Eyes Wide Shut, but still that whole world is very, you know, it <laughs> gives you a really eerie feeling. That world that guy ends up in. Mm-hmm. So you have this in- insanity theme, scenes of masks that are constantly running through Kubrick's films, and especially in The Shining, the the looks on Jack Nicholson's face. How contorted yeah. his face gets. Uh, 2001, the masks of the cover stories that are told on the on the ship <clears throat> to try and fool people. And uh, remember the speech that Floyd gives. And of course, uh, Hal is privy to the cover story, so that kind of like drives him nuts. Right. And <clears throat> and and like, what does all this stuff mean? You know, and that's why you really have to work with it because it's not any one meaning necessarily, but it's a lot. It's a constellation of meaning. What interests me about some of the some of the themes that seem to fascinate him throughout his career, uh, I, I mean, he seemed to have had a d- basic distrust of of power, uh, mm-hmm. of powerful establishments, um, and how does that translate into his view of tech, technology, because you mentioned earlier, you know, uh, sure we've advanced uh, in so many ways, but uh, in many many other ways we're even more primitive. Is he saying something to the effect of, yes, our technology is incredible, but at, at what cost if it strips us of our humanity? Is that a message to be found in 2001? Definitely. I mean, take a look at the conversation that Floyd has with his daughter. Mm-hmm. So here he is, he's talking with his daughter, and she's very far away. He's talking to her to her through a tiny television screen. <clears throat> and the, the, the loss of humanity, like he's he's basically separated from her, and he's completely oblivious to this beautiful view of the earth that's twirling in the background. He's sort mm-hmm. of like alienated from that, and he's looking at this uh, simulated picture of his daughter. And again, you have the same type of thing when... Uh, Frank Poole talks to his parents and they sing happy birthday to him in one of the most eerie scenes in cinema I've seen. I mean, that that scene just creeps me out every time I see it. And his complete lack of emotion as they're singing happy birthday to him. Mm. Um, And this theme of birthdays, right, is also running through 2001. The daughter and Poole, 
and they talk about Hal's birthday, and obviously at the end, the birth of the of the baby, and it'd be tied together by that that Strauss uh, composition about the Overman, the Superman. Yeah. So this this brings up Nietzsche, right? And Nietzsche is basically saying that uh, the improved man will be this Overman, Ubermenschen, the Superman. And Kubrick seems to take a very dim view of this concept. Um, it's you know based on you know his films. Yeah. He clearly he clearly has a very pessimistic view of modern society. Um, and that's that's pretty clear. I don't think there's any ambiguity there. Yeah. And he's just really like writing about it and going, you know, what have we done? <laughs> mm-hmm. Where are we going? Mm-hmm. You know, we've got all this technology, but what are we doing with it? Exactly. We've talked about that a lot. The well, first of all, the ambiguity, obviously, uh, and his view on, uh, you know, humanity. And, and if, if he's, you know, it's amazing to me that a movie like Eyes Wide Shut, <coughs> excuse me, that uh, the end of that movie, some people read it as one of his most hopeful statements. And others read it as one of his most nihilistic. <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. You'd never see you'd never see that. Usually, he he doesn't program you on how you should feel at any given moment, like we're so accustomed to in, in American films. Oh uh, yeah, definitely, and that's what makes him so powerful because you just have to keep coming back to them and and get more information. <laughs> mm-hmm. At the same time, you know when you start to put all this stuff together. Certain certain themes appear more prominent, and certain interpretation, interpretations appear more plausible based on everything that you've seen. Um, and so that that again, I think the business about the modern society and the effect of it and what it's doing, I think it's pretty clear there that he really wants us to think about what's going on for obvious reasons. Uh, yeah. He's making Doctor Strange love. And he's immersed in this idea that, again, if you're growing up in the '60s, it wasn't really clear that we were going to survive the '60s. Mm-hmm. You know, based on the, the Cold War and everything that had happened before that, and of course in the '50s with all the the drills, the civil defense drills, people basically thought that the world could easily end. And he he's thinking about this and he's going, well, you know, here are all these really brilliant people capable of making these weapons that can blow themselves to smithereens. Um, smart enough to destroy themselves, and the irony of that. Mm-hmm. And, and I think he, he really, you know, really made him wonder, like, uh, what type of film should I be making, and what types of thoughts should I be inspiring in the people to sort of get them into a different frame of mind so they can escape this. Yeah, that's that what did fascinate him. Yeah, that did fascinate him, and and that explains a lot about his attraction to somebody like Napoleon. Too. I mean, it, it, especially since Kubrick himself was so fiercely intelligent and meticulous, and to take a character and you know one one turn and he kind of he kind of ruins ruins himself. But um, 2001. I have a couple of couple of questions to get your take on 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 the the meaning of certain things. What you're feeling? Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, the monolith. What what for you does that represent? Well, again, it's a great, it's a great symbol. Now, I think in one of the early versions of that film, <clears throat> which he was working on with Arthur C. Clarke, 
they were going to do a, a, I think it was a glass pyramid. And so they changed it from this glass pyramid to this monolith. So when they make a change like that, you have to ask yourself, okay, why does it look like this instead of like a glass pyramid? And there's a lot of possibilities. Uh, one, you could say it's like a brick, like a brick in the wall. Or the fact that it's black is something that absorbs light. You can you can say that it's uh, a domino, right? Something that, when it's pushed, leads to some other thing. Um, there's a lot of possibilities, and this is the shape of it, you know, the angles of it, the the aspect ratio of it. Um, all these things come into play. You could call it a door. William Blake had a great line: "If the doors of perception were cleansed, everything would appear to man as it is infinite." So if you look on it as a door, then it's a doorway for Bowman to go from, from one thing to another. And uh, so I think that that would explain the shape of the thing. Uh, yeah. Literally, you could also call it a piece of the puzzle, right? Uh-huh. A very simple piece. So Kubrick's films are filled with all these little details, and you you sort of have to put them together for yourself. And to make it look like a puzzle piece... Is sort of an indication that you know this is a piece of the puzzle, and you're supposed to do something with it, which is use it and then put it together to get to some other thing. Mm. And it, and it could, I mean, it, some people have said that it's it's an extra an extraterrestrial kind of uh, structure that that it, it, we can use for to 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 gain knowledge, and the apes. Uh, the, they take that knowledge and they they kill. They, they discover the first weapon, uh, and and that and the flash cut that occurs when mm-hmm. he throws up the bone and and we cut to the arms arms space satellite, uh, basically ignoring millions of years of evolution in between. Uh, what mm-hmm. what do you think that that statement is? Well, you know this whole. You can, again, so to take this at the symbolic level, you can look at this whole opening section as sort of a twist on the Garden of Eden myth. Mm-hmm. So the Garden of Eden, uh, man is basically in this beautiful forest, and all of a sudden there's this tree of knowledge, which he's really not supposed to take a bite out of, but he does it, and he's cast out of the Garden of Eden. And you can look on this as sort of a 21st century view of that myth where the monolith is the apple. And once you touch the apple and gain the knowledge, you are then cast from paradise. Mm. Although, in that case, paradise was a desert, indicating that, um, you know, it it wasn't that good to begin with. (laughs) And uh, it's about to get a whole lot worse. (laughs) Uh, You know, know, the, the apes... You have to take a look at the apes, right? They're, they're by a body of water, and they've mm-hmm. received all this knowledge. Now, what could they have done with this knowledge? They could have taken that water, and they could have irrigated their desert, and they could have created a Garden of Eden. But instead, what they do with the knowledge is they take it, and they pick up a bone, and then they kill an animal. Mm. All right? So there's this violent tendency in man to sort of, like, go away from, you know, the long-term, more sustainable type of a world into the short term boom 
let's get it, let's get violent, let's grab what we want, and we'll suffer the consequences later type of attitude, yeah. which then leads to things like these nuclear weapons circling the earth. Mm. And, and and again, it brings up questions of how, obviously, how we're, in spite of our intelligence, we're we're we're, we're using it to destroy ourselves, and also the the notion of the duality of man, which was a theme that fascinated him. You see it in Clockwork Orange and all the work he did in the war genre, which he returned to time and again. That's right. And he uses this white and black color coding <clears throat> in an opposite way. I mean, you normally have. So back in the old days, good was white and black was evil, right? Good guys wore the white hats, black guys wore the black hats. 2001 kind of reverses the, that semiotics. White in 2001 is not necessarily indicative of good. It can be indicative of death, and it can be indicative of a very sterile type of existence, right? An existence without any humanity. Mm-hmm. And and the best example of that is that spaceship. So when you're finally on the spaceship, I mean, I don't know about your emotion reaction, but I'm I'm creeped out when I see that ship with the fluorescent lights all over the place. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And everything is white, and and the conversation is very plastic and unengaging, and the people are very sterile. And then when you finally get onto the the space station, and you see the the astronauts that are hibernating inside their tanks, and the only way you would know they were alive is a, a line on a graph that indicates that they're alive, right? Mm-hmm. The EKG machine, EEG which Hal immediately snuffs out. So the only difference between death and life for them is a line on a graph, indicating that the modern world that you're entering is, you know, not nearly as enticing as you might have otherwise thought it would be. Do do you think the movie is um, ultimately, 2001, is ultimately hopeful? Do you think... He's saying that by dismantling Hal and reaching a higher level of consciousness uh, and that rebirth that occurs at the end, do you you find that to be a hopeful statement? I do. Uh, So again, if you go back to the symbolic literary references, do you ever read uh, Dante's Inferno, Human Comedy by Dante? I haven't read it, no, sir. Great book. Well... So there's three stages, right? You have uh, the Inferno, which is hell, and Purgatory, which is kind of this middle ground, and Paradise, which is heaven. Mm -hmm. So you can instantly see a connection there in 2001. Well, one of the aspects in 2001, excuse me, in Dante's Inferno, is that Dante is accompanied by Virgil, and Virgil represents the voice of reason, Right, Just like in Star Trek, Mr. Spock represents logic and Bones represents emotion. Dichotomy you see a lot. A trichotomy you see a lot. And in Dante's Inferno, what you learn is that Virgil has to be present to get Dante out of hell. And Virgil can take Dante through purgatory, but Virgil is not able to get Dante to paradise. For that, he has to go to Beatrice, his love, or it can indicate some spiritual awareness or it can indicate a certain type of emotion, but it's definitely not just logic. Mm-hmm. So the connection in 2001 is that 
you've got to sort of like disconnect the logic circuits to sort of really get to that higher level. And, uh, of course, Star Wars echoed that as well, right? Yeah. The, full, yeah. the whole concept the force. of the force. Mm. Yeah. You know, you have to tap into the intuition and the emotion. You have to pull another type of consciousness in and not just be so logical or clinical, which is kind of like the uh, viral bane of the modern world, the, the bureaucratic mentality, the categorization, and the ultra-rationality that you find mm-hmm. everywhere where people look at spreadsheets and make decisions about what to do. Right. Um, you know, again, in the 60s, there was a very famous case with the Vega, the Ford Vega, or the Pinto, the Pinto. And there was exploding gas tanks. And there was memos out by the Ford executives that said they knew that about 900 people would die from these exploding gas tanks. And they figured the cost of the lawsuits would be, we'll say, $90 million. And the cost to fix the cars would be like $400 million. And because it would cost more to fix the cars than to pay the lawsuits, they decided to pay the lawsuits and let the 900 people die. Hmm. That, that's the kind of mentality that I think that Kubrick is well aware of, the kind of mentality that, that creates a world with nuclear weapons, and that's the kind of thing he really wants us to fight against. Yeah. Do you find in your conversations <clears throat> about 2001, um, because obviously I know that Kubrick was a, an agnostic, I, I, I believe, but do you find that people find a spiritual message in 2001? Well, I think so. You know, he, he definitely claimed to be, if not an agnostic, agnostic and possibly an atheist. However, <laughs> like a lot of Kubrick, um, I kind of discount these statements because there definitely is a spiritual dimension to 2001. Mm-hmm. In fact, uh, how, if you switch the letters around, you get A-L-H, which you know is an Allah, and it's also the three primary consonants in the Hebrew word Elohim, which is the standard word for God in the Old Testament. But it's oh. Hal is not Hal is not A L H. Hal is that twisted up, right? Uh huh. Uh huh. And again, you look at the one eye of Hal, and you connect it with the eye of the pyramid, which is supposed to represent God and the dollar bill. And again, these these connections are there. Uh, the question is, you know, what does it really mean? Uh, <laughs> and I don't know, but I know that <laughs> I know that I know that Hal is definitely the demonic side of all of this, the yeah. red eye, right? Right, right. Uh, Man, it's it's an endless well. I I could talk to you all day all day about this <laughs> stuff. You you know you know all about it. Um, tell me how he. Uh, in terms of genre, your observations about how he works in genre, um, because it seems to me that he's working in in genres that are that are well tested and they have their conventions. I mean, even the heist film and the killing, but he's constantly testing the restrictions of that genre and how he can redefine it. I think he's using the genre really as like a Trojan horse just to carry what he really wants to say. He, to work within the commercial medium, he's got to he's got to make money with his films. He's got to appeal to a mass audience. He has to has he has to have this outer layer 
that people will immediately respond to and, and look at it as like a genre film. So I'm going to go to Shining on to see a horror film. It's a great horror film. And if that's all you wanted to do, see a horror film, you're happy. Uh-huh. If I want to see a great comedy, Dr. Strangelove, right? Considered one of the classic comedies. Okay, right. he did that. want to see a great science fiction film. I mean, if you think about it in the genres, he's done like the greatest genre film in each genre that you can name. Mm-hmm. You know, Full Metal Jacket, one of the greatest war films. Shining, one of the greatest horror films. Strangelove, great science fiction film. Um, you know. And Eyes Wide Shut. What? That's great. That seems to be an oddball. What do you? Well, think I won't is? say it's a not a porn film, but it's it's the greatest <laughs> <laughs> it's it's the greatest example of what a a porn film would be if it was made by a, an artist. Right. Uh, but it's not a porn film. You know, it's it's again that's what it might seem to someone that would be the initial attraction. Well, let's go see Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman. Uh-huh. But uh, it's a very, very different film. <laughs> he loves doing that to people, you know. You come in for one thing and you get a totally different experience. Uh-huh. And Full uh, Metal Jacket starts off that way, right, with all that, that really hysterical dialogue that the sergeant has. Right. And a lot of, like, you know, these pro-war types would go in there and really just get a kick out of that dialogue. But he, he definitely turns the tables on those guys as that film develops. And, uh, you know, he gets under your skin. And he does. He, and he, they do, and he turns tables on you. And people do talk about how Full Metal Jacket feels like two different films in a way, and it's very jarring. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, that had to have been intentional. What do you think his intention was with that? That's, that, to me, is the most mysterious... To me, that's the most mysterious Kubrick film, the way that's structured. Oh. Because I, I I don't I don't understand why it's divided that way, but it's definitely it's like two separate films joined together. Yeah. And and why he decided to do that, I, I don't know. I thought about it a lot, and I, I really can't come up with anything. I mean, we go from that horrific <clears throat> murder suicide uh, to to Nancy Sinatra's "These Boots Were Made for Walking." Right. It's odd. Yeah. It's a, a total twist. But again, it's. It's kind of like, a, again, another essay on the absurdity of war mm-hmm. and the whole absurdity of the concept. I mean, you can talk about Kubrick's ambiguity, and there's a ton of it. At the same time, he definitely has a point of view on certain things. I mean, he's not he doesn't make pro-war films. Uh, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. If you look at Dr. Strange, I mean, this is definitely an anti-war film, and, and Full Metal Jacket, to me, is definitely an anti-war film. The, the and Pesach Glory. Myth, yeah. Mm-hmm. Pass the Glory, most obviously, with the an anti-war film, I think, from him. Yeah, and and so he 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 really has a point of view on this, but he's doing it in a very different kind of a way that he's trying to bring out all these other aspects. Because you have to ask yourself, why do people do this? You know, we're in this war in Iraq and Afghanistan now. Uh-huh. Why? And, and why aren't more people protesting? Uh, and the budget for the military is just astronomical now. It's, uh, I think, over $700 billion. Mm. Do you know that the United States spends more on its military than the rest of the world combined? Yeah, yeah. And uh. and why? And and we have this gargantuan national debt, so we're paying for this stuff, but we can't, we're not paying for it, right? We're just printing up money, and ultimately it's going to result in a possible financial collapse like we saw in 2008, but a lot worse. 
yet they continually persist in it. So why are they doing that? Um, you know, just another mystery for him. Yeah. Um, I want to talk to you about Eyes Wide Shut, but first with The Shining, uh, I've heard a couple of interpretations of the film. Uh, the, you know, there's there's someone that's written extensively about how uh, he, he views it as 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 Kubrick's statement on the faked moon landings, Apollo moon landings, and he's very specific. Like, you haven't you haven't read that? Mm-mm, no. He's very specific, like point by point, uh, shot by shot, how how it's illustrative of that. But uh, the most interesting is uh, we spoke to uh, Bill Blakemore, who's a ABC News reporter, and about 23 years ago he wrote an article uh, describing how The Shining is 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 really about the genocide of the American Indian. And there there seems to be a a, a distinct streak of racism in The Shining that that's obvious. Uh, what do you what ideas do you think that he's exploring in in that film? Well, you know that's that was a really great. Who, who wrote the one about the American Indian? Is it Bill his name? Bill Blake Bill Blakemore? It's on uh, it's on the Kubrick site where some where some of your material is as well. You know, um, so that's I hadn't read that, but on the other hand, I think it's pretty obvious something like that is going on in that movie. So they talk in the movie that the house is built on an Indian burial ground. So what does the house represent? I mean, remember the date on the photograph that you saw Jack Nicholson, one of the final shots of the film? Right. On the, July 4th, 1921. And in the opening shot of the film, uh, Stuart Ullman is talking to Jack about taking a job in the hotel. He's the caretaker. If you take the letters Stuart Ullman and you reverse them, it's U.S. And on his on his desk is a little picture of an American flag. So they're they're making these identifications. There's also American flags that are appearing elsewhere in the movie. I think there's a and little, they, I, I, and, and the axe too. That just occurred to me. And I think there's a little axe in his, uh, in, in a cup on Almond's desk. Correct. Uh, Which is yeah foreshadowing. Yeah, foreshadowing. Obviously. So. And some people look at these things and they go, oh, well, that's just a coincidence. However, you know, there's just so many of these coincidences in the movie. At some point you have to go, you know, is this really a coincidence or is this a design pattern? Mm-hmm. I mean, how many coincidences could there really be in a movie, after all, that are purely coincidental and how many are actually put there? Um, for example, the, when you watch the TV in there, Danny's, looking at a film of the Roadrunner, right? Roadrunner chasing the coyote. Uh-huh. Excuse me, Cody chasing the Roadrunner all over the place. Clearly echoing and foreshadowing what Jack is going to do with his family. Mm. And Jack is an echo of Jack D. Ripper in Dr. Strangelove, right? The right. other nutball is trying to uh, basically destroy himself and everyone else. <laughs> around <laughs> it, it, that, that movie is endlessly fascinating to me and and in his read on it uh i mean there's so so many things in the film but even the name overlook hotel uh you know how we kind of overlooked our our travesty against you know the, the american Ooh, indian i like that i like uh, that yeah. there, there's stuff there's stuff in the in the food storage that uh there's an indian 
it can, oh, right. Canned food with the the title. I forget the title of it, but it means peace pipe. And there's something very specific that he does with the cans, where he kind of he kind of switches them around between the time that Holleran's in the food storage room to later on in the film when Nicholson's there begging to get out. And and that says something that he uh, – and also does he – him passing him passing his his sins to the son and how it could ultimately be hopeful that the son escapes that at the end. Mm-hmm. But in the original right. cut, in the original cut, uh, Ullman passed the tennis ball to Danny in the hospital. Uh, oh, really? That they, yeah, that's an alternate ending that they cut out of the the film. Mm. Um, and and it pl- actually played uh, for about a week in in several big cities because it was a last minute exclusion. And and our American version of The Shining is 18 minutes longer than the international version. We get our own special version th- mm. that includes all the talk about uh, all the racism and, and it's built on an Indian burial ground and all all of that. It, I mean, it's endlessly fascinating. Danny retracing his steps. In the maze means something. Uh, it goes well, on and yeah. on. Well, so yeah. and that that takes you back to 2001, which is the idea of. So you remember that myth of the, I think it's Theseus and the Minotaur. I think it, what is what it is. And he wants to go into the midst of the maze to slay the Minotaur, but he knows he has to get out of the maze. So what he does is he carries with him a ball of thread. And he carries that with him all the way to the center of the maze, kills the Minotaur, and then is able to get out of the maze by, again, retracing steps or going backwards, uh-huh. right? Uh-huh. So for, for Kubrick, this is sort of like a, a theme. Like if you really want to re- get out of your predicament, if you want to escape the maze you've created for yourself, you need to go backwards. Mm. You need to retrace your yeah. steps. Yeah. Right? Wow. And, and get back to a different type of a world, the kind of world that we left that maybe we shouldn't have left. Mm-hmm. Just endlessly fascinating to me. I mean, it's it's well, uh, that, invigorating. Well, the thing about Kubrick is, uh, unlike any other director, he gives you this fodder to work with. Mm-hmm. I mean, could you imagine having this conversation about Jaws or uh, Cat Baloo? Right. <laughs> or the right. Dirt Dozen? Like, Right, there's there's nothing in those films that that's going to allow you to talk about them that way. But you know, Kubrick is not only connecting all of his films to each other; he's also drawing parallels and making linkages out to to artworks outside of his films. You know, the Thus Spoke Zarathustra, the Ulysses Odyssey, so uh, or the Bible. So the character in 2001 is named David Bowman. You know, why is he named David Bowman? Well, in the Odyssey, Ulysses is an archer, right? An archer is a bowman. And why David? Well, David versus Goliath. So there's a a famous shot in the 2001 where you have that small ship against the really large ship. Uh You have the human in one, the human, the small human against the massive technological edifice run by Hal. David versus Goliath. Wow. Uh, and okay, but you got to put I, the puzzles. You know, you you got to put it all together for yourself and and see what comes out. Um, I I want to talk to you about Eyes Wide Shut. Uh, mm-hmm. So you just you just wrote a lengthy piece on it. You said, um, 
and that that's on Amazon. Did you say you can get it on yeah, Kindle? Yeah, on Amazon. Yeah, on Amazon, I just put up two. I put the Kubrick uh, FAQ, and I also put the Eyes Wide Shut. That's called Understanding Eyes Wide Shut, which is a 95-page document, which oh. consists of lots of comments from the uh, alt.movies.kubrick news group, uh-huh. which, I, which I haven't visited in some time. Have you been on that recently? I have, yeah, yeah. The, 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 in how's the past that doing now? Weeks. It's doing well. I mean, it's... Uh... It's massive, so so I, I I mean I was I was combing as much as I possibly could and uh, and and cramming because it, it's very valuable. Well, it was really really great in the early nineties, and uh-huh. then it sort of it fell apart for a while, but I guess now it's come back, which is good. But we had lots of great conversations about Eyes Wide Shut uh, back in the nineties and. There's literally hundreds of comments on on this film. It just yeah, goes on I, and on and on and on. I didn't see uh, what the, what the most recent dates of some of the comments are so when when I looked up there. Uh, so so I don't know the level of activity recently, but I, I know definitely that I've been reading it and it's very popular. Um, do you feel like Eyes Wide Shut was the movie that Kubrick wanted to make? I guess that's the first obvious question. Well, it's hard to tell exactly, but I would say yes. Uh-huh. Um, I, I think uh, you know there's so much in the movie right now that it definitely works as it is now. Whether or not it would have been better if he'd lived longer, who knows. But right now, as it is, it's it's great. For me, what I'm going to do is I'm going to I'm going to buy the uh, Eyes Wide Shut uh, when we get off the phone and read and, and and read it because our Eyes Wide Shut show doesn't actually air until the end of February. So if I have any questions for you, it would be great if I could go back to you and, and we could spend a little bit more time together. Um, but just to get a sense of of your thoughts, your initial thoughts on it, um, do you think the big question with the film is? How much of it is a dream, uh, and how much of it is reality? Do, do you take any stock in, in the idea that we're watching a dream film? Uh, it's again, it's entirely possible. That film and film, Full Metal Jacket for me are the films that are the most opaque, mm-hmm. and that, that I, I really can't get a handle on. I, there's a lot of stuff going on in there. I know that there's all these connections to be made, but I don't have like the big picture view of the film like I think I do with 2001 or The Shining. I think 2001 or The Shining are a lot easier to decode than something like Eyes Wide Shut, which is really, really complex. Uh, the ref- the biblical references, the circle references, the mask references, the use of colors, um, things the characters say. Uh, again, this whole notion of dream the fact that he gives a cab driver a $100 bill and uh, that he's taken by a cab to a place. It just goes on and on. There's a character in there named Domino. And remember hmm. what I said earlier about the monolith looking like a domino? Right. And again, intertextuality, at the end of the film, there's a shot of teddy bears, which if you know the, the story Super Toys, Last All Summer Long was the inspiration for AI. Uh-huh. It's going to be a pointer to his next film, AI. You know, and so then how does this 
Eyes Wide Shut connect to a film which she didn't even make, AI. Mm. Uh, I just talked to the writer of that right before I got on the phone with you. Oh, really? Uh, AI? For, yeah, for the well, the the one that worked with Kubrick on the screenplay, Ian Watson, the, the one the screen story credit. And I think I'm talking to one of the I'm talking to one of the actresses in Eyes Wide Shut tonight. I forget which one Domino is. Is she the prostitute or the roommate of the prostitute? That, uh, uh, let's see. Domino's. Well, let's see. Sally was Domino's roommate, and I'm trying to. Sally's the who. one I'm talking to tonight. Uh, mm-hmm. Vanessa Shaw is the one that played Domino, and uh, Faye Masterson plays Sally. She's the one that I'm talking to tonight about her scene in that film. So. But now, how many people would think to make a connection between Eyes Wide Shut in 2001? Yet yeah. this word Domino, this word Domino hooks you right up. Mm-hmm. And and so you know. <laughs> the cir- the circle references in Eyes Wide Shut, the use of circles, and then the use of circles in 2001. These circles are all over the place, round shapes, and indicating cycles of rebirth, cycles of existence. And these these circle references in 2001 can inform the circle references in Eyes Wide Shut. I, what I don't understand is. The, the whole history of the uh, Illuminati in, in the film. Uh, I mean, there, there's there's a lot that that I I don't quite grasp <laughs> uh, about that whole orgy scene. Oh, well, Illuminati uh, relates to illumination and light, and that's another theme in in 2001. This this going from light to darkness, right? The use of black and white, which we talked about. Uh-huh. And then when he leaves that room and he goes into his whole star field with all the crazy lights, lights indicating that, you know, you're now changing or you're about to get more information in your consciousness. And you you see this light and dark references in, in Eyes Wide Shut also. Yeah. Which is, it's mostly dark. I think this, it's all, most of the film takes place at night, right? Yeah, it does. It does. Mm-hmm. Uh, at night during Christmas, um, Christmas season, in a very kind of unreal feeling New York City, and the, the, it doesn't quite feel real. It, and I, I know that you know you can reproduce New York in Vancouver and, and make it look just like it, it, it in film. So it, that had to have been intentional. I mean, the streets don't really. I mean, do you feel that way? Just like there's an unreality to Vietnam in certain sections oh, yes. of Full Metal? Well, definitely. I mean, he he makes very stylized types of movies. So at one level, they're, they're in a way like documentaries, right? 2001 has, in some respects, like a reality-driven documentary feel. At the same time, it's a stylized type of documentary. It's heightened. Everything is, is more. Mm-hmm. Uh, so remember that first shot in the Clockwork Orange in that the milk bar? Yeah. It's just how expressionist that is. And it's so odd. And and the way the characters are composed, the way that they're posing, and the way Alex is looking at the camera. Mm-hmm. And it's it's very composed and very surreal and very expressionist all at once. So you're never really sure that you're looking exactly at reality, but you might be looking at just some 
some heightened version of reality. Mm. And like you said, with eyes wide shut, you might not be looking at reality at all. Right. Another thing that fascinates me about the movie is how he, you know, he has a palette of very passive characters in his films and, and very proactive, you know, usually reserved for the psychotics, uh, you know, larger than life or very passive. And the way he uses, you know, the biggest star on the planet at that time, somebody that we associate with with being completely a, a proactive person, Tom Cruise, in a very in a very passive voyeuristic way. I mean, he in eyes wide shut. He almost uh, makes him impotent in a way in the film. That's a great observation. Yeah, you're right. And uh casting him against type. Uh-huh. And maybe and, and the film does have almost echoes of impotence in it. Uh and I've heard this said about um Lolita and uh and uh Clockwork as well, but because he always there's he always gets close <laughs> to sex in the film and and never quite mm-hmm. achieves it. Right. Uh yeah. How do you th- what do you think of his treatment of female characters in his films, Kubrick? Well, let's see. If you go back to 2001, there's really they're more, almost like mannequins in 2001, right? Uh-huh. The stewardess and and the the women in the the ship who are very passive. So they're not really doing too much. I guess they get a very favorable view in Barry Lyndon. Maybe that may be his most human film. The way the the characters are lit with candles. Mm-hmm. That was a real innovation back then. He lit the film in many times with candles, just natural lighting. And the beautiful, uh, I think it was one shot of um, a woman with a child in Barry Lyndon that he visits. Yeah, that he pulls out of. Is, is that the scene where it, it almost looks like a painting and he pulls out of it? Right. It looks yeah. like a painting. Yeah. It's just beautiful. And you get the sense that when you, when Kubrick talks about going back, He's talking about going back to that type of a world, a world where things are lit with candles uh, and natu- natural beauty and or- an organic type of a world instead of an inorganic, sterile type of a world, mm-hmm. a world that's not filled with plastics, a real, a real world with real, honest people. And uh, the, the mask theme is prominent in Eyes Wide Shut, right? The characters oh, yeah. behind masks. Numerous right. times, and the final shot in the film is I think there's a mask on the one of the final shots is a mask on the bed right and this mask thing um is big uh, uh and it's sort of like a key it's like a key it's a key to the way you should look at this film and other films um who who is wearing the masks and why are they wearing the masks, and what are they trying to project? And what's really behind the masks? These are the questions that you should be asking. And there seems to be because I think in the in the in the book in the in the novel, the Trom novel, the Schnitzler mm-hmm. book, she actually mm-hmm. takes the mask out of his bag or, or something, so you know how it got on the bed. I mean that's obviously cut out of the film. So the, it's almost like Kubrick wants to have it both ways because his eyes wide shut a dream, is it not? Uh, I, can, I can buy it as a reality. 
until he walks in and just the bed is just the, the mask is just mysteriously placed right there on the bed or the shining mm-hmm. is it all in his head or is it supernatural you can believe that it might be all in his head but how does the locker the freezer door open from the outside you know it's exactly yeah. exactly yeah. and then there's other things in the shining too that indicate that there's more going on behind the scenes there's you might even call them intentional mistakes which is one of the fascinating things that Kubrick does. He's a guy who's very meticulous and professional, right? Mm-hmm. And does take after take after take and works on his films for years. And yet some of the films have these mistakes in them that you have to ask yourself, you know, are these really mistakes or are they intentional? So there's one scene in The Shining, and I, I forget exactly what's going on. I don't have my notes in front of me. But Halloran is talking to some clerk, or he's making a phone call in a store. I think he's come in from the snow and he's entered some store to to make a phone call. And there's this object that appears on the bar or the table where he's talking. And so you'll see a shot of Halloran, then they'll cut to something else, then they'll cut to a shot of Halloran. And every time they cut back, that little object twists. It moves position. Huh. And no one's around to move it, but it just moves. It's a continuity error. Is this or the scene? You... Is this where he's talking to the guy trying to arrange to get a snowcat out there, or this is a different I think, scene? I think, yeah, that may be the scene. Okay. But if you if you go back and watch that, there's there's some object on there that's shifting its shape, and no one's around to move it. Oh. Uh, little anomalies like that, and you go, hmm. That's, that's really strange. Why are you doing that, Stanley? 